All right, so this is our second class in the dialogue in the suttas, series of sessions. And I thought I would just start by asking if there were any uh, questions from the material from last week. Okay, so now that we're all hearing, um, so the material last week, we talked about questions and we talked about um, right view in, and the uh, 10 irrelevant questions to the fundamentals of the holy life and then the Four Noble Truths as the more relevant framework. I'm just curious if there's any follow-up in anybody's mind from any of that. Just want to make space for that. Oh, good. You all understand the Four Noble Truths completely. <laughs> um, I did run across this uh, quote from the Good Times in the first week of November. Um, it made me laugh. So, beyond the trivialities of everyday life and the freak show of contemporary culture, there are only three questions truly worth pondering. Is there life after death? What is the fate of humanity, and are we alone in the universe? <laughs> Just so you know, the Good Times has told us what the three most important questions are. Now, do, the, do those sound like Malankya Buddha's questions? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so the Buddha might have something to say about that. That was in, from an article about the revival of Seti, by the way, the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. Okay. <laughs> so are we ready to go on to MN58 then? The uh, Prince Abaya. Okay. I brought the book and I also have one extra copy of it. Does anybody need one? Why don't we pass one back to this fellow who's a guest for us tonight. This is Scotty, by the way. He just happened to be coming by the neighborhood, and I figure people are walking into the meditation center. Um, they're probably supposed to be here. So, okay. So, the Abhaya Raja Kumara Sutta. Raja means, we know this, right? King. Yeah. And Kumara, um, I believe, means son. So son of the king would be prince. Yeah. Okay. Um, let's just dive in. Who would like to read the first, um, the first couple of paragraphs? Heidi. This have I heard. On one occasion, the Blessed One was living at Rajagaha in the bamboo grove, the scroll sanctuary. Then Prince Abhaya went to the Niganta Nataputta and after paying homage to him, sat down at one side. Thereupon, the Niganta Nataputta said to him, Come, Prince, refute the recluse Gautama's doctrine 
and a good report of you will be spread to this effect. Prince Abaya has refuted the doctrine of the recluse Gautama, who is so powerful and mighty. Okay. So this is the setup. You know, this is it's telling us the setting. First of all, um, Abaya, what's the name of the monastery up north? Abaya Giri. Um, so Abaya, and does, do you guys know what that means? Fearless. Fearless, yeah. So Abaya is fear, Abaya is fearless, and Abaya Giri is fearless mountain. So this is Prince Fearless. It's interesting. Um, so we have this character, the Nigantha Nataputa. And I wrote in the um, email that I sent that the Nigantas are the Jains. That's the name that's given to them. Jainism is still alive in India today, but it was also an earlier version of it was um, present even in the time of the Buddha, 2,600 years ago. So it's also a pretty long-lived spiritual practice. I, um, I'm not an expert on Jainism. I don't know a lot about it, but it is very devoted to asceticism um, and non-harming. That's the main precept that they take, is to not harm any creatures. My understanding is that there's, they... Um, sometimes have a practice of sweeping the ground in front of them as they walk in order that they won't step on any insects or creatures. So, so committed are they to not harming anything. And to some degree, there's some meditation in this um, practice also. Um, but they have a different means, like a different type of meditation, and they teach a different goal than the Buddha did. So it's kind of similar, but not you know, really not the same. And so uh, there's a number of encounters in the teachings, the written teachings, with the Nikantas, and it should be Nikantas, actually. Um, and the Buddha was, you know, polite, as he is to everyone, but this is a little close to him. He's, he needs to also differentiate himself, and so that's why you see this sense of a little bit of rivalry between them. Okay, so who would like to go on and read the next section, uh, the prince's question and then the long answer by Nataputa? Mark, you had your hand up earlier. Sure. But how venerable sir shall I refute his doctrine? Come, prince, go to the reckless become and say, venerable sir, that if the Thagata utter speech, that would be unwelcome and disagreeable to others. If the reckless Gautama had been asked thus, answers that the father of Prince had uttered utter speech that would be unwelcome or disagreeable to others, then say to him, then venerable sir, what is the difference between you and an ordinary person? For an ordinary person also would utter speech that would be unwelcome or disagreeable to others. And if the reckless Gautama on being asked thus, answers, if the Thakada Prince would not utter speech that would be unwelcome and disagreeable to others, then say to them, Then, Venerable Sir, why have you declared Devadana? Devadana is destined for the states of deprivation. Devadana is destined for hell. Devadana will remain in hell for the Aegon. Devadana is incorrigible. Devadana was angry and displeased with that speech of yours. 
when the reckless Gautama is posed this two-horned question by you, he will not be able to throw it up or bolt it down. An iron spike was stuck in a man's throat. He would not be able to either throw it up or bolt it down. So too, Prince, when the reckless Gautama is posed this two-horned question by you, he will not be able to either throw it up or to bolt it down. Okay. <laughs> He's a nice guy. <laughs> yeah, so uh, who is Devadatta? Have you heard the name before? Cousin? Yeah, it was the Buddha's cousin. And uh, what's, he, what's he famous for? For uh, plotting to have to kill the Buddha. Yeah, he did plot to, to kill the Buddha. I believe he ended up putting an iron spike through his foot. <laughs> Speaking of iron spikes. Um, but or maybe it was, a, it was a rock shard, I guess. Anyway, um, the other thing that he did was he split the Sangha. So he did actually lead a group of the Buddha's monks away from the Buddha to follow Devadatta instead. And he convinced them that the Buddha was, uh, the, the doctrine that he was teaching, Devadatta was teaching, was purer than the Buddha's doctrine. And so a bunch of monks uh, went over to him for a while, and he was leading this other Sangha. That is considered one of the five... Um, heinous crimes, if you will, in Buddhism for anybody to commit, uh, which the other, the five of them are killing one's mother, killing one's father, killing an arahant, wounding a Buddha, a Buddha can't be killed actually, but wounding a Buddha, or splitting a Sangha. Interestingly, those five are ones that are immediately punishable by hell, according to this. Now remember that hell in Buddhism is not permanent. It's a state that you go to for a while, uh, and then the karma of that will run out and you'll be reborn somewhere else. There are no uh, permanent destinations in this understanding. But, so the Buddha had basically spoken in line with his understanding that this is one of the five things that will definitely lead you to hell, so he was speaking the truth um, in his worldview. But definitely Devadatta was not happy with that. Um, and yeah. Interestingly, uh, I'll just put this out because of the beliefs that sometimes go with Buddhism in the West. One of the things that Devadatta uh, said that he was purer about than the Buddha was that he would require his monks to be vegetarian and that the, um, uh, the allowance by the Buddha of them to eat meat if that's what they got in their bowl, was uh, harmful. And so he would declare that they would only be vegetarian. And uh, the Buddha considered this too extreme, and this was not part of his doctrine. Interesting, right? This is how it is for the Theravadan sect. Yeah. Okay. So um, we have this challenge. You know, he says, go to the Buddha and basically debate with him. So we see a de no possibility of debate. And he has this, he's figured out in advance, he's plotted and schemed that this is a question that the Buddha cannot answer without getting himself in trouble. If he says, yes, it's going to be in trouble. If he says, no, it's going to be in trouble. So um, he has this idea. And so he sends, of course, instead of doing that himself, he goes and sends Prince Abaya to do it for him. <laughs> um, 
And he has this image of the, the spike being stuck in the guy's throat, not being able to go up or down. Any comments up to this point? Yeah, Leanne. Just because it, it intrigues me a little bit that because you know he's a typical human, but Prince Abayek was willing, so willing to do this, you know, uh, present this for the Jain. Well, I think I think Prince Abayek was a Jain. Um, my guess is that he was, or at least sympathetic. Many of the uh, Brahmins and some of the um, some of the ruling class were of that sect. It doesn't actually say that here, so I'm just guessing, but. Um, yeah, but yes, he's very he's very willing. I don't know why. Um, I don't think we find that out in this one. Okay. So who would like to read starting at section four? Brad. Yes, Venerable Sir, Prince Abaya replied. Then he rose from the seat and after paying homage to the Nagashpa, Keeping him on his right, he left and went to the Blessed One. After paying homage to the Blessed One, he sat down at one side, looked at the sun, and thought, It is too late today to refute the Blessed One's doctrine. I shall refute the Blessed One's doctrine in my own house tomorrow. And he said to the Blessed One, Venerable Sir, let the Blessed One with three others consent to accept tomorrow's meal for me. The Blessed One consented in silence. Okay. Um, yeah, so what's going on here? He chickened out. <laughs> oh, you think he chickened out, okay. He got cold feet. Maybe. It doesn't actually say that he got cold feet, but maybe. Yeah, we don't. It's hilarious that he says it's too late in the day. He arrives and then says, well, maybe not. So he invites, instead he invites the Buddha to come to a meal at his house tomorrow. Um, and the Buddha's decides to come. So, yeah. Um, but we can skip, I think, section five. It's just the part about getting to his house. And he serves him well. And so then the Buddha has eaten. He's happy. And the prince is now ready to present the question. Okay, who would like to read section six? Jill. Um, Venerable Sir, would a Tathagata utter such speech as would be unwelcome and disagreeable to others? There is no one-sided answer to that, Prince. Then, Venerable Sir, the Nagatas have lost in this. Why do you say this, Prince? Then, Venerable Sir, the Nagatas have lost in this. Prince Abaya then reported to the Blessed One his entire conversation with Nagata Nabuta. Right. <laughs> so he, he, the big moment comes and he asks the question that he was supposed to ask. And the Buddha says, there's no one-sided answer to that. Now, interestingly, um, uh, the word that, that's translated here as one-sided, um, do you remember the sutta we, we read last time that had the four kinds of questions? Um, it, we had a different translator. We were reading Tan Jeff's version of that, and this is Bhikkhu Bodhi, so they're using different language. But the word that's translated as one side is the, the same word that um, uh, Tanjev translated as categorical. So this is the first kind of question. The word is ekansa. Um, and so he basically says there isn't, it's a yes or no question. Would the Tathagata utter this kind of speech? 
And so he says, there's no categorical answer to that. There's no yes or no answer to that using interestingly the same word. So he's very clear on what kind of question this is, but he says it can't be answered that way. And then immediately the prince realizes, oh, you know, he didn't, he didn't fall into the trap. He was supposed to say either yes, and then I'd trap him, or no, and then I'd trap him. And then he immediately throws the Nagatas under the bus. I mean, it's, it's <laughs> Well, you know, maybe they weren't that wise about picking their guy to go send yeah. to the debate. I'm not sure. But yeah, so then he immediately, you know, tells exactly what was going on. Maybe, the, maybe something about being in the Buddha's presence makes it harder to lie. I don't know. You know, you don't know what it was like to be in the Buddha's presence. We don't know. Okay, so now we get a little bit more detail about what's going on. Um, who would like to read section seven or the next section if you're on one that doesn't have section numbers, Leanne? Now that on that occasion, a young tender infant was lying prone on Prince Abaya's lap. Then the Blessed Wind said to Prince Abaya, what do you think, Prince, if while you or your nurse were not attending to him, this child were to put a stick, stick or pebble in his mouth, what would you do to him? Venerable sir, I would take it out. I could not take it out at once. I would take his head in my left hand and crooking a finger of my right hand. I would take it out even if it meant drawing blood. Why is that? Because I have compassion for the child. Right. So suddenly we're brought right into the present moment. Right, he has, it's kind of, I found it a little bit abrupt that it suddenly says, oh, by the way, he had a tender infant lying on his lap. But I guess that wasn't a relevant detail earlier. Um, so how does the, how does the Buddha respond to Prince Abhaya's question? After he says there's no categorical answer, what does he do then? He poses a counter question. So, you know, he was given a, something that would, should have, was framed as a categorical question. But remember the categorical ones, the ones where you just say yes, no, this or that, are the ones where the frame is correct. Um, those are the ones where the Buddha agrees with the worldview from which that question came and he thinks it's a useful one and so he just answers it. But the ones where there's either an analytical answer with a description or a counter question is where they weren't quite coming from the right direction. And so the Buddha has to correct the frame a little bit. So he suspects, you know, he says, this question is framed as, well, you, you either would or wouldn't utter speech that's disagreeable to others. Um, but the Buddha doesn't see it that way. And so he's going to try to help Prince Abhaya understand um, what he thinks about the criteria are for, you know, for, for how he speaks. So he gives this immediate example of he's got the baby in his lap. And so he says, well, what if the baby had something in its throat? Where we heard something in the throat earlier. <laughs> yeah, so the iron spike. So we have the Niganta saying, ha, he would get an iron spike in his throat and we would just, you know, he wouldn't be able to do anything with it and he would just choke, <laughs> you know, it's like, and then we have, what about if your baby had something in his throat and, you know, Prince Abias says, I would take it out because I have compassion. So we immediately have a difference of non-compassion versus compassion. 
But the Buddha doesn't say it so clearly, right? He makes this point a little bit subtly. So now he's going to give, he's given a counter question, which the prince responds to. Honestly, yeah, I would just, I would save my baby. And now the Buddha goes on and he gives a different kind of answer. Um, this is what was, is called an analytical answer. We haven't had that example before, but he gives an analytical answer where he describes more clearly what it is. He gives a, a longer teaching what it is that he's talking about. So who would like to read section eight? So too, Prince, such speech as Nagatha knows to be untrue, incorrect, and unbeneficial, and which is also unwelcome and disagreeable to others. Such speech the Tathagata does not utter. Such speech as the Tathagata knows to be true and correct, but unbeneficial, and which is also unwelcome and disagreeable to others. Such speech the Tathagata does not utter. Such speech as the Tathagata knows to be true, correct, and beneficial, but is unwelcome and disagreeable to others, the Tathagata knows the time to use such speech. Such speech as the Tathagata knows to be untrue, incorrect, and unbeneficial, but which is welcome and agreeable to others. Such speech the Tathagata does not utter. Such speech as the Tathagata knows to be true and correct, but unbeneficial, and which is welcome and agreeable to others. Such speech the Tathagata does not utter. But such speech as the Tathagata knows to be true, correct, and beneficial, and which is welcome and agreeable to others, the Tathagata knows the time to use such speech. Why is that? Because the Tathagata has compassion for beings. Right. So now he talks more about what compassion means to him in terms of speech. He ties all these themes he's brought, brought up together. So this is kind of a complex paragraph with all the different, whether it's beneficial or true. But there's basically three dimensions. What are the three uh, axes along which he's talking? It's true. True. It has to be um, beneficial. 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 And what's the third? Welcome. Welcome and agreeable. So he's got that thing in there that the, that the Nivantas are asking about. But he also says it matters whether it's true and beneficial. So you'll notice, uh, we won't go through the, the whole, you could have just drawn like a diagram, <laughs> a matrix here. But, um, you know, this is all written out with all the various possibilities. Actually, not quite every possibility is included. There is no possibility for speech that is untrue but beneficial. You will notice that one is left out, right? Um, but everything else, there, there should be eight combinations if you have three sets of two you know, of polar criteria, but there's only six given because he leaves out untrue but beneficial. It's never the case. But that would be the same case, that which he would not speak. Yeah, so but he's saying he's saying that it's right, that that doesn't exist. <laughs> so, right. So, but you're right. Um, the first two criteria, true and beneficial, are absolutely required. You'll notice that um, in no case, if, if either of those is not there, would he speak? He always says it would, he would not utter speech. It's either untrue or unbeneficial in any combination. But if it's true and beneficial, then potentially he could utter it. But he says that he checks on the timing for speech, you know, then the third dimension of whether it's agreeable or disagreeable. Yeah. Is it, I mean, <clears throat> is it a condensed way to say that whole um, monologue? Isn't that just saying 
I know what to say and I know when to say it because I have compassion for everybody. It seems like to me it's kind of what he's saying. Yeah. Yeah, he's saying that his speech is compassionate. I know when to say it. And it's because just like you cared about the baby, well, I care about everybody. So I, just like you would know when to fish the object out of the kid's mouth, I know when to say what and to do at the right time and place for everything. Yeah, I think that would be an extrapolation of what he says. He's he's trying to be very specific about his criteria, um, whether it's true, whether it's beneficial to the person. And then he might say something that's disagreeable if it were true and beneficial. Or he might not say something that is agreeable, even though it's true and beneficial, if in either case it wasn't the right time for that. Did you have a comment? Well, I, th- I think he's not, I, I, I just want to disagree a little bit with what Mark's saying, because I feel like he's being that specific in, in, in what makes something worth saying. He's not just saying, I know what to right. say. He's making it more helpful to everyone. Yeah, yeah, I guess he's, like he's teaching. He's giving us a teaching. So we yeah, could follow this also. I get yeah. that. It's like, and he always, as usual, has a way of making minutia seem profound. Yes, <laughs> that's right. It's really awesome to me. <laughs> he also is saying subtly that, um, you know, we often don't know why we're talking necessarily. You know, we, we do a lot of talking all day, but is our motivation for speech always compassion? Maybe, <laughs> maybe not. And so he's pointing out that his criterion are put together not because he thinks they're best, not because they're inherent laws of the universe, but because they're related to compassion. Carlotta, did you have a comment? Yeah. So I, I see five elements here, right? To be true, correct, beneficial, welcome, disagreeable. Five. My question is, what is the difference between something to be true and correct? There isn't. Those are those are meant to be synonyms. Oh, because he mentioned that. I, I know, but one of the things that I, I this is my opinion about this is that one of the um, things that the Buddha does repeatedly is that he'll say a whole series of things that are basically synonyms. You know, he'll say this is terrible, vile, awful. <laughs> you know, he doesn't usually use that choice of word, but. Uh, my understanding is he does that to make sure that um, if one word is a trigger word for somebody, they'll hear one of the other ones, or if there's different shades of meaning, he'll kind of capture them all. My sense is that because he never differentiates true and correct, he never says true but incorrect, for example, is that he means true and correct to be together, and that he also means welcome and agreeable to be together, because that was actually the question from Nikantanataputa also. So I'm saying I would say there are three dimensions here: is truth, benefit, and agreeableness. But it's a good question because there are. It does look like there are five at first glance. Jill. So would a good synopsis be that anything he would say would always be true and beneficial, mm-hmm. and then the agreeableness or disagreeableness dynamic would be based upon Timeliness. what would be most compassionate for that person? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Because, like, remember from the last sutta that we read with Malankya Puta, who came with all these ten questions, the first thing he said to him was, um, you know, he reviewed the contract from when he came, became a monk, and he said he called him a misguided man. So I don't think that would be especially agreeable to hear from 
you know, if you're a monk under the Buddha, he says, misguided man, that's not what I said. Um, but that was presumably, first of all, it was true, and it would be beneficial for him to understand that he was misguided, and he probably judged that at that moment it would be okay to say that, even though it might be unwelcome. Yeah. Interestingly, um, consider also the last one, where it's true, it's beneficial, and it would be welcome. Still, he says, there's timing. You might not say something like that if it wasn't the right time. Why would you not say something to someone if it's true, beneficial, and would be agreeable to them? I think it, it really points to the need for mindfulness uh, to, to not just be blurting out things. Um, at least that's the lesson I need to learn from that. <laughs> yeah. Just because it's true doesn't make it right for the moment. Well. Or for the person at that moment. Right. Yeah. Like, like, like if that truth is going <laughs> to... Uh, cause more damage than knowing the truth would help in a given moment. I think that's where skillful means comes in to be able to judge moment to the person to person. Yeah, he, well, he is pointing toward having that moment to moment awareness. I think what he's saying, I hear him saying that true and beneficial are always required. There would be no shading of the truth. Um, but my under, what I've thought about this last one, uh, you can see what you think, is that there might be times where saying something that's it's true and beneficial, like giving a teaching, but if you give it, and it would be agreeable and welcome, but if you give it at that moment, the agreeableness and welcomeness might create some, um, some clinging in the person. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, there are cases where... Um, people get attached to the teacher instead of the teachings. And, you know, if you've got somebody who's kind of like overly worshipful of you as a teacher, you might be giving them a teaching, but what they're going to do is fall in love with Gautama. Oh, he's so perfect and beautiful, you know, and he might be thinking, you know, that's not actually in that person's best interest in the long run. So, yeah. But then wouldn't it be categorized as Wouldn't it be unbeneficial? I don't know. It's hard to say. Maybe these aren't completely separate. Or maybe I don't completely understand that last one where it's true and beneficial and welcome, but he chooses not to say it. Or maybe it's a moment where the wider circumstances make speech not good, like it's the middle of a silent meditation retreat. <laughs> yeah. Helen. I was sort of thinking about that as well. And I'm wondering if another, I think the way that I looked at it is if it's true, beneficial, and welcome, but he wants the person to discover it as opposed mm -hmm. to him saying it Yeah, that's another possibility. Like, yeah. yeah. It would be helpful for oh, It would be beneficial for you to hear this, but more beneficial for you to right. say it yourself. That's an, another possibility. I like that. It might also have to do with the setting, like if there are other people around. Yeah, somebody who he wants to give a deep teaching on emptiness that would be just perfect for Sariputta, but he's got a newly ordained monk who's going to be really confused by that in, in his presence, so it wouldn't be helpful to say. It kind of seems yeah. tone of intention. Yeah, so he's very careful about the intention, and so the intention, he says, is compassion. That's He's really trying to be of the most help to the most beings. When you, when you spoke of um, the person could actually become attached to, like you used the example of the teacher, um, I also thought about um, the three criteria could be leading also to flattery. 
Mm -hmm. um, where the person could also somebody could interpret it as as it being flattery. Yeah, I think Jill's point that it might not be beneficial then right. does apply, but maybe they're not completely separate criteria. Um, anyway, there's so we're you know we're pointing toward now the, the the subtlety of what would be yeah the most compassionate, the most true. Why he would? Why, why he would? Wouldn't he's yeah. made it pretty clear? Yeah. Okay, um, any more on that section? Because the prince has another question, it turns out. <laughs> okay, um, just, yeah. Uh, thought. Uh, there are some people who have a hard time reading social cues. And so I'm just thinking that might, this might be challenging for certain people because they just don't have certain kinds of awareness or intelligence. So that's why he's laying out the criteria so carefully, is that? I, I guess I'm just wondering if- Are you just commenting? Yeah, commenting yeah. that there may be people for whom this is difficult to do. Yeah. Even though they're attempting mm -hmm. to follow these guidelines. I would agree with that. Um, I guess that's true of all of us. <laughs> I was gonna say, I I think I fall in that category. Yeah. But, other, but it's, for some people it might be even more Might be really difficult. Absolutely. Differences, Differences in um, sensitivity of various kinds. The Buddha is very clear in, not in this, that's not a, what this teaching is about, but that the, um, the motivation matters a lot. So if you were really genuinely trying to follow these and it still didn't work, it wouldn't have as heavy karma as if you mm -hmm. deliberately just kind of ignored these or had the ability but were lazy at that moment. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there might still be some difficulty if you were insensitive about saying something, then the, the ethical thing after that is to clean it up in some way. But if there wasn't any ill intention and somebody just didn't read the cues right, and um, that's actually not, uh, that's not bad karma. Mm -hmm. yeah. Okay, who would like to read section nine? Venerable Sir, when learned nobles, learned Brahmins, learned householders, and learned recluses, after formulating a question, then go to the Blessed One and pose it, has there already been in the Blessed One's mind the thought, if they come to me and ask me thus, I shall answer thus, or does the answer occur to the Tathagata on the spot? <laughs> <laughs> the prince is wondering how he got so, in, you know, Aikido'd on this <laughs> in some way. <laughs> I don't know. That's my interpretation. So um, who would like to read section 10, Heidi? As to that, prince, I shall ask you a question in return. Answer it as you choose. What do you think, prince? Are you skilled in the parts of the chariot? Yes, venerable sir, I am. What do you think, Prince, when, pe when people come to you and ask, what is the name of this part of the chariot? Has there already been in your mind the thought, if they come to me and ask me thus, I shall answer them thus? Or does that answer occur to you on the spot? Venerable sir, I am well known as a charioteer, skilled in the parts of a chariot. All the parts of a chariot are well known to me. That answer would occur to me on the spot. Okay. 
Actually, you could go on and do 11 also. So too, Prince, when learned nobles learned, Brahmins learned, householders and learned recluses after formulating a question then come to the Thakata and pose the answer occurs to the Thakata on the spot. Why is that? That element of things has been fully penetrated by the Tathagata, through the full penetration of which the answer occurs to the Tathagata on the spot. Okay. Thank you. Yeah. So here uh, we have again the counter question, the, the prince's, um, to the prince's question. And then after that, he, uh, and so the prince, you know, complies and says that he's good at the chariot. And then uh, he gets an, after that, he gets a categorical answer. He just tells him the answer to his question. But interestingly, he uh, wanted to give him a little counter question first. So, um, why do you think this section is included? For what? Why is this section included? Why do we have this second question? Mm -hmm. Oh, sorry. No, you want to talk. No, okay. Okay. Um, I'm thinking because uh, in order for like an individual to know when the right timing is to speak and in what way, um, like you need to know on the spot because you can't like spend, you know, you can't prepare for every single conversation you're gonna have in life. Um, and so like it, it, the, the way to be able to do that would be to like penetrate more into like other areas of the practice. Yeah, um, I don't think there's a single answer to this. I'm just kind of, talking through it. Yeah, Heidi. I think it also shows um, a bias kind of um, magical that he, he wonders, does the, does the Buddha have these questions already? And does he know in advance so that he can have the, the answer all teed up for him? You know, it's, it's that kind of magical thinking of what, what powers does the Buddha have? And it's like, no, I just happen to know it really well. So I don't have to. It's, it's obvious to me. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, um, when I think about it, I kind of relate it back to Niganta, the Niganta Nataputta set him all up, right, with a question. And he said, if the Buddha says this, you say this. And if the Buddha says that, you say this. So he had him all kind of teed up. And, and you know, Avaya was all ready to answer. If the Buddha says yes, then I know what I'm going to say. And the Buddha didn't say either of those. And he was completely... I mean, the first thing he says is, oh, well, then the Viganthas have lost. You know, it's like he had, he kind of had no idea how to proceed if he couldn't give his yes or no, you know, response that he'd been queued up to give. And so he, in the back of his mind, he's thinking, uh, you know, how did that happen? And, you know, <laughs> there was the third possibility that I didn't even realize. And so then he's, you're right, he's kind of marveling, well, how, how does this come about? And the Buddha says, look, forget all that rehearsal stuff that you did when you came. Probably, you know, you, you could probably kind of tell that Abaya was you know, setting him up and probably from the look in his eyes. And so he says, look, you have to, this is a, you know, this is a real time kind of thing. So he's giving him a further teaching about this whole backstory, actually, where he had gotten all set up. He's even reaching back to that and teaching him about that. It's quite brilliant. This is my interpretation. Yeah, a couple of a couple more. I was thinking that he's also Buddha is also uh, letting the prince have faith in him. 
know, reminding him that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I know. know. Yeah. It's not something that I know in my head. Yeah. You know, it's just, I would just know it. Yeah. Kurt. What I read into it also is that um, you, you have become an expert in chariots. I've become an expert in, in this case, the human speech, mind and the human heart, using yeah. the mind, and and that it's become habitual for me. And and you could do that too. That's true. It's somewhat empowering. Maybe he's also sort of pointing to where we put our effort in learning skill. You know, did you learn about the chariot or did you learn about the heart and how to communicate with people? Yeah. Yeah. So um, it then ends with this uh, stock phrase. A lot of suttas end with this. You know, in fact, there's even a dot, dot, dot in there because it wasn't all included. So when this was said, Prince Abaya said, Magnificent Venerable Sir, Magnificent Venerable Sir, the Blessed One has made the Dhamma clear in many ways. And the part that's ellipsed there says, you know, he has uh, turned upright what had been knocked over. He has uh, shed a light um, so the beings that can see forms will be able to see, etc. From today, let me let the Blessed One remember me as a lay follower who has gone to him for refuge for life. So, wow, you know, it's like he was converted, basically. But you notice that this was um, a spontaneous utterance on his part. Uh, the Buddha didn't ask him to take refuge. Uh, in fact, there's, I'll be careful saying never, but... I think on, on probably less than a handful of occasions does the Buddha ever say anything about taking refuge in him. Uh, it's something that people do spontaneously. He didn't give the three refuges at the beginning of all his, his retreats. Um, and yet we see it fairly frequently. So it's, it's interesting to think about the notion of refuge, is that it's something that, that we do in response to the teachings. It's not something that the Buddha asked to be put upon, you know, yeah, put toward him. So I like the I like this sutta because it's about wise speech. Nominally, that's the main teaching, and about spontaneous you know, being able to do that spontaneously. That's what it's about in the content, but the demonstration is purely that also. Right? It's self-consistent. He is, what he's talking about, he's actually doing. He's not just, he's practicing what he preaches in this very sutta. He answers spontaneously. He um, says things that are true and correct. And in this case, um, welcome, I believe. So, yeah. Any other comments on this one? Yeah. Carlotta and then Brad. I saw Carlotta yeah. first. I thought that uh, actually the prince did show one element that the Buddha said in his response. Uh, the prince did not ask the question that night. He waited the right Till time. Till the right time. That's, yeah, when 
that was I, I had also thought of that maybe he was thinking about the timing maybe he got cold feet I'm not sure <laughs> but maybe he suddenly he said this is and he does say this is not the right time to ask this question maybe he was doing it yeah thank you Brad Well, I, I, I was thinking, reading that, that it was a long-winded way of saying that whether what he's going to say is welcome or not doesn't make much difference. That the answer, what counted was whether it was truthful and beneficial. And, uh, that's, that's clearly the more important dimensions. Yeah. You know, those are the ones that you don't compromise or... Now, there's never any compromise, but that those are the ones that are simple, I guess I would say. And then the, the whether it's agreeable is something that then falls to whether it's actually timely to say yeah, that or not. I was going to say that he, yeah. he kind of leaves open the possibility that whether or not it's agreeable can influence whether or not he says it now or another time. That's right. Yeah. So he might. Yeah. So this also, um, if I can riff a little bit, just expand a little bit on what you're saying is, I see sometimes in Western Dharma um, a sense that that um, right speech is nice speech, mm-hmm. and that everything we say should be agreeable. That that's one of the qualities. Um, I don't think this sutta says that exactly, um, as long as it's compassionate and beneficial and true. We could say something that's a little hard for someone to hear. I know I've benefited from teachers pointing out things about my uh, behavior or my views that I wasn't seeing because I was ignorant of them at that moment, but the teacher could see them and they said, hey, have you noticed that you are, or, you know, look at that, you're, you seem to be worried about this or attached to this. And at the moment I thought, no, I'm not, <laughs> you know, because <laughs> that's what the mind does, right? It defends that. And then... The more I thought about it, I was like, you know, they were right. <laughs> yeah. Did you have a comment also, Jill? I saw, I yeah, I was just name. thinking about that because I, uh, I, I had, uh, I, yeah, I think I had the same experience with, like, not, not just in Western Dharma, but I actually went to Thailand and went to treat for the first time this summer. And that's right. We talked about Thailand, that earlier. Yeah. Um, I think the, it, it was, it, it was interesting because the people who were leading the retreat were volunteers who were not teachers. So I don't, I'm not sure how they were trained, but, and it might also be like an influence of Thai culture. From my understanding in Thai culture, it's like really taboo to say anything that's disagreeable. Mm. But it definitely the impression of the teaching was that we shouldn't say anything that you know could be you know disagreeable to anyone under any circumstances. I'm not sure if that was their total intention, but that's how it came off. So I felt like this was particularly valuable for me to hear. Yeah. Um, yeah. Interesting. All right. I also I also found interesting the way that the what's the name Nama Nama what what's the name? <laughs> Nigata Nataputa? Huh? Nataputa? Yeah, the way uh, how he uh, tried to entice the prince because basically he uh, he um, uh, 
try to put the ego. I mean, he 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 built the right. ego. You would be famous. Right. You will. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Everybody will say a good report of you will be spread. <laughs> so it's about speech, right? <laughs> Look, everybody's going to speak well of you if you do this. Yeah, there's a lot of speech in this and how speech can be related to ego also, as opposed to, say, compassion. Yeah. There's a lot of dimensions here. Yeah, Heidi. I'm thinking of a story that I'm not sure if it's from the suttas or Jataka tales or something about the Buddha and a snake that uh, it hears the teaching and says that he's going to be uh, a follower of the teachings of the Buddha and be nonviolent. And then he gets beat up, and um, and then he comes back to the Buddha and says, "Look what happened to me when I tried to follow your teachings." And the Buddha said to him, "I told you not to harm people, but I didn't tell you not to hiss." Is is that a sutta story? It's not in the suttas, but it's um yeah. It's it's probably like maybe yeah tale, yeah yeah so interesting. So he told him that he should have defended himself, essentially. Well, you can hiss, right? Don't bite. But I wonder if that's the origin. There is a, um, when people take ordination, there is a requirement that you answer the question that you are a human being. And my understanding is that is because somewhere in the distant past, um, a serpent posed as a human and was ordained. And maybe this is that story. I'm not sure. But there is, there's also uh, in the monastic rules, uh, what, to, what, what, what you're allowed to do if you get attacked. And I believe you are allowed to raise the hands defensively. Uh, so you're allowed to you know, block your face, but you're not allowed to strike. So maybe it's like hissing. Yeah. So you, you don't have to just stand there and let yourself get beat up. But um, yeah. All of these rules came about from real situations, by the way. So that's from real situations. So it's intriguing. question based on that one so like i feel like raise hands defensive there's like a lot of steps between raising your hands defensively and striking like i, I mean i can imagine that people who were trained in various forms of martial arts i don't know very well could like defensively position their bodies in ways that stops the person from <laughs> without actually like striking the person yeah. so like, is there any more like detail on that i don't think so that's what something that's, I've, yeah. I've thought a lot about is like the idea of non-violence and how like i don't know that i think uh there can be a lot of there's been criticism in my head and from other people of buddhism because like there's this idea that like it's just totally pacifistic um to an extreme which like i don't i don't know i'm unsure of now like like, what is past? I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, look at the Shaolin monks. It depends on the sect. I was going to say, Theravadan is different than some of the forms of yeah, Chinese yeah, or Japanese Buddhism that include can include martial arts. Yeah. Aikido is, yeah, it's is also... It's also to protect your attacker yeah. from the yeah. bad karma of hurting you. Yep. So you're protecting your attacker by defending yourself without seriously injuring your attack. Yeah. So there's compassion in that also. The, um, the Buddha's second foremost disciple, who was named Mogalana, you guys may have heard that name, 
he was um, he met his end by uh, being murdered, actually. So he was an arahant, but that doesn't stop your karma from ripening. And he, because he was the foremost in psychic powers, he knew that the assassins were coming. <laughs> Somebody who had a long-held grudge against him um, hired assassins to come and kill him. This would, of course, be one of the five heinous crimes, killing an arahant. So it would be very, very bad for those assassins. And so they came one day and he snuck out of the house. <laughs> and I forget how many times this happened, but he snuck out a few times to protect their karma. He didn't care about his life. He was an arahant. He was going to go to Parinibbana no matter what, but he didn't want them to go to hell. And he hoped that by just sneaking away, they would lose their nerve or rethink what they were doing or whatever. And they, they didn't. They were so determined that he eventually just let himself be killed. Um, and that was how he died. But um, it's intriguing, right, that he thought about... And thought about their karma. He didn't. He didn't have any more karma for him. So, it was, you know, he he was only running off of stuff that was being played out. So, so sort of something I was going to say like, I'm about. I totally agree that in Western Dharma, it, they often say right speech is nice speech. Um, I I don't know. Especially, I feel like from living in New England for so long, like that Puritan value of like just push everything under the rug and like let's not talk about anything uncomfortable. But going back to the idea of karma of others, like I personally find the idea of it being beneficial to others to be the most difficult part. Like maybe you've determined that it's true, maybe you've determined whether it's welcome or unwelcome, but then determining how do you know if it's beneficial you know for it's them? Beneficial. I think I yeah. that's the person that I found. Mm -hmm. It's an interesting point. And, you know, what I think is beneficial for you might not. Right, exactly. Yeah, yeah or, is it really beneficial for you or is it beneficial for me? Yeah. And it um, also, we're not the Buddha. We can't always right. see the mind state of somebody else. And, um, you know, how do we know if, yeah, if that's really what they need right now? This is somewhat the art of guiding other people is to have a sense of what they need to hear at this moment. You know, it might not be that somebody needs to hear the Four Noble Truths right now, even though those are true and nominally beneficial. You know, it's like but some other teaching would be better for them. Yeah, I agree. That's a hard dimension to be sure about. Do you guys want to look at the other sutta that we had? Um, this one's quite different, isn't it? So this is um, SN 5.6 the um, from the Sutta Nipata, which is part of the minor discourses, the Kudika Nikaya. And this is, uh, I think I wrote in the email I sent to you, this is a place where there's 16 Brahmins asking questions of the Buddha, and um, they aren't Buddhist, so, uh, you know, they, but they're, in fact, they're quite advanced in their own practice, their own Vedic practice, essentially, um, but nonetheless, they are uh, respectful of the Buddha, they consider him to be an important teacher, and they have genuine questions about liberation, the Buddha doesn't agree with how the Brahmins reach liberation. He doesn't agree with their definition of it, but he respects that, at least in this sutta, he's 
respectful of all the questions that are given to him. So this one is the one from Upasiva. Um, let's see. Why don't we just, if someone wants to, we could just bite off the whole thing. It's a little hard to know where to stop in the middle of it. So it's only about nine stanzas. Would somebody like to mark? Alone, Sakya, unsupported, said the venerable Upasiva. I'm not able to cross over the great flood. Declare to me a basis, O universal eye, supported by which I might cross over this flood. Oh, actually, why don't we go ahead and stop after as we go along? <laughs> um, yeah, there is there's a lot of dense some density here. So this there's a lot of references here. Um, universal eye is of course the Buddha. Sakya is of course the Buddha. There's a lot of names for the Buddha as we you learn as we go along. Um, so this flood, uh, did anyone know what the flood is? Trouble? Yeah, so that's a good, that's a good summary. <laughs> it, um, the floods or the flood in general refers to our greed, hatred, and delusion or our ignorance or there are actually four floods defined um, in one of the other sets of, what is it, what are the floods? Sensual desire ignorance, views, and maybe self or something. No, being and being. So sensual desire, being, ignorance, and views. So crossing over the flood is the term for attaining, awakening, for passing beyond all of those things. Okay, Mark, you can go on. Okay. Contemplating nothingness, mindful. Upasiva said the blessed one. Supported by, there is not, cross over the flight. Having abandoned sensual pleasures, refraining from perplexity. Night and day, see into the destruction of craving. Okay. One devoid of lust <clears throat> for all sensual pleasures, said the Venerable Supported by nothingness, having discarded all else. Liberated in supreme emancipation of perception. Will he say there without departing? Okay, so let's pause there. So the Buddha says, he's, so Upasiva says, I can't do this by myself. <laughs> um, tell me something, tell me some basis supported by which I might cross over the flood. And so this is one of those questions where, you know, there, there isn't exactly a basis um, that could be easily named. And we can't say... Uh, because remember, these are Brahmins, and the Brahmins were big believers in uh, ritual and also in uh, the sacred Vedic texts, which their practice was to memorize and learn and be able to recite and, and so forth. But they also did a lot of rituals, like with fire, and they, they had beliefs that you had to do the rituals exactly right in order for them to be effective. So there's a lot of um, support in their practice stuff that they rely on. And, um, you know, of course, there are practices all over Buddhism. That's uh, the case also. But the point of them is that you go, um, they're used as tools, and they're not uh, ultimately relied on. So the Buddha has a difficult question to answer from Upasiva. So he says, oh, you should contemplate nothingness. <laughs> you know, it's um, contemplate emptiness. I'm not exactly sure what word was used there for nothingness. Um, supported by there is not. 
So, you know, this is a little bit dense language, but it's, you know, so there is not probably refers to uh, the understanding of impermanence. There are not solid objects, emptiness, and the understanding that any given thing that you experience is not your permanent self. So we're asked, for example, just to notice, is the body myself? No, it's not. Are my thoughts myself? No, they're not. And so um, he encourages him to actually try to work from a place where he's not, uh, where he's, he's contemplating more not than, than is. Refraining from perplexity. Don't get confused by all this either. <laughs> and so then Upasiva asks a question. So he says, um, if I were to, you know, dwell in this way, liberated in the supreme emancipation of perception, um, that's a reference to liberation, um, would he stay there without departing? So he says, if my mind goes beyond perception, would it stay there? Interesting question. So um, go ahead, Mark. Mm-hmm. One devoid of lust for all sensual pleasures with placebo, said the Blessed One. Supported by nothingness, having discarded all else, liberated in the supreme emancipation of perception, would stay there without departing. Okay, so he gives a categorical answer. He says yes. <laughs> so is he saying like once enlightened, always enlightened? He is saying that. It's interesting. Uh, he is talking about complete enlightenment. So he, but... Well, we can't see it from these verses exactly. Um, but essentially, I think what he interprets Upasiva's question to be is, you know, can you, can you be there and then forget it or lose it in yeah. some way? And the Buddha says, no, you can't lose it if you really got there. But that, he's not quite satisfied with that. So he goes on. Does anyone else want to try or should we let Mark finish the whole thing? Mark's doing a great job. Well, thank you. Glad I learned to do this. <laughs> if he would stay there without departing, even for a multitude of years, or people just alive, would he become cool, liberated right there, or would the consciousness of such a one pass away? Okay. So another question. So he says, "Okay, so you got enlightened. Um, what happens to consciousness?" Is this starting to sound like one of Malankiputta's questions? You know, a Tathagata after death exists, does not exist, both exists, nor does not exist, neither exists, nor does not exist. So he's, he's pushing at that, right? Um, so now, interestingly, when Malankiputta asked that, um, the Buddha didn't really answer him, right? He he gave him a counter question and then gave him a long teaching about a guy getting shot with an arrow demanding, asking too many questions. He basically said, this is a ter- this is not the right question, right? He attacked first the question and then he gave him the thing about the Four Noble Truths being the fundamental of the holy life. But he answers Upasiva quite differently. What does he say? As a flame thrown by a gust of wind, Upasiva, said the Blessed One, goes out and cannot be liberated. Cannot so be designated. Moody, cannot be designated. Oh, designated, I'm sorry. I went wrong there. So the Moody liberated from the mental body goes out and cannot be designated. Uh-huh. 
So this one he actually answers. Um, but he, he makes an analogy. What is this, um, what is this fire analogy? What's a Mooney? Oh, a Mooney is, um, uh, it's technically a, a wandering mendicant. You may have heard the term Shakyamuni for the Buddha. So that's the Muni from the Sakyan clan. We have Sakya in the first line. Sakya is the name of the Buddha's, I guess clan isn't the most popular word these days, maybe a family group. Yeah. So a Muni would be, yeah, the recluse. Muni would be what? Would you say Muni would be what? It's a wandering mendicant. Yeah, it's a oh, yeah. Okay. What does it mean? Cannot be designated. Yeah. So cannot be designated. Um, so he's saying, what is it? What is it to designate something? Like what would that? What is that? Categorize it. Name it. It has the word sign in the middle of it. We give it a, a signature, a sign, something that identifies it, right? So it's, an, it's a subtle answer. Um, we have this analogy of the fire. We're going to see this next week again also. But when a fire goes out, where does it go exactly? You know, we have our Western scientific understanding. Oh, well, you know, the hot gases couldn't be, uh, you know, giving off light anymore. But um, they didn't know anything about that at that time. They had instead an understanding in Indian physics that um, fire is uh, clinging to its, um, to its fuel, basically. In fact, the word for fuel is upadana, which is also the word for clinging. If you look in the chain of dependent origination, you get to clinging, and it's upadana, and that's actually the word for fuel for coal or wood or whatever is being used. They probably didn't use coal. Um, and the idea is that the fire is grasping onto that. And then at some point when it's not clinging anymore, it goes out and it just goes, we don't know where, right? It doesn't, it just goes out. It's just out. And that, um, that word is, I believe, Nibuti. Sounds like Nibbana, which Nibbana means out <laughs> or unbound or no longer clinging. There's a lot of um, richer symbolism in these words than we would understand in the West because we don't have that idea about the fire. So this is a very um, rich image that the Buddha is giving, a flame thrown by a gust of wind. You imagine it kind of you know, thrown off of the fire it just vanishes, right? It doesn't have the fuel that it's clinging to anymore. So, um, devoid of lust for all sense pleasures, right? We are not clinging anymore. So he says we can't really say, we can't really designate uh, such a person. So Upasiva doesn't quite get it. He doesn't, this, this is a hard idea. So he goes and asks another question. Let's go on with 1075 and 1076. What does one who has gone out not exist, or else is he attacked to eternity? Explain this matter to me. 
clearly only form that this Dhamma has been understood by you. There is no measure of one who has gone out with the sickness of the blessed one. There is no means by which they might speak of him. When all phenomena have been uprooted, all pathways of speech are also uprooted. Yeah. So Upasiva doesn't go for the non-designation. He says, yeah, but does he exist or doesn't he exist? <laughs> you know, does one gone out not exist? Or is he intact through eternity? Is, does he... So he's asking all these same questions that Malankiputta was asking. Um, but the Buddha's actually answering him in some way. Uh, he's basically saying, well, there's no answer. So he doesn't quite, he again, doesn't give the answer, but he says there's no measure. There's no designation. You can't pick any of the four corners of the tetralemma and say that's the one. It's, um, and so remember that Indian logic said that the four corners of the tetralemma define all possible answers to a question. So he's saying there is no answer to that. What do you think of this, this last part? There are no, there's no measure. So designation is a measurement, essentially. You're able to uh, identify something about it. There's no means by which they might speak of him. All pathways of speech are uprooted. What do you make of that? We just had a teaching on right speech. I'm teasing you a little bit. They're different realms, right? <laughs> but well, before we were focusing on right speech was that it had to be true and beneficial. So maybe you saying here that there's nothing true that you can say, so you don't say anything. Yeah, that's. I think that's quite possible. Yeah there would be no way to say something that was exactly true because it would have to then be a definite statement. And he's saying there is no definite statement that can be made about one who is liberated. Because there's nothing there. He's saying there's nothing there to describe. Well, (laughs) anything that we would... He doesn't say that explicitly. Well, anything that we would say would say something about us we would be creating the designation in a sense. There are a lot of examples, not in this sutta, but there are other examples where the Buddha dances around um, the, the situation where somebody tries to define him. You know, if they say, oh, you are such, he'll, you know, he, he will attribute that to them, and he won't, but he won't accept it for him necessarily. It seems, um, I'm now inferring from these lines, But it seems that an awakened person um, doesn't really have a description for themselves. Um, We might try as other people, but that, you know, there's a sense that for that person, there's really uh, no real designation. And that's sort of, they've sort of gone out of thinking of themselves in that way. You know, I'm this, I'm that. Remember the uh, right after the Buddha was awakened and he was walking along the road. He hadn't even started teaching yet. He was just walking along the road, intending to go teach his um, former ascetic friends that he had been practicing with before his awakening. And some um, person found him, a, a wandering ascetic, saw him on the road and said, "Wow! I mean, he must have been just radiant, right?" And he said, "Wow! Are you some kind of god?" And the Buddha said, "No." And he said, "Well, are you a human being?" And they said, "No." And then he said, well, 
what are you? <laughs> and so he was asked the direct question, and he hadn't, he hadn't honed his teaching quite yet to be able to, I don't know, he, but he, uh, he said, I'm awake, is the only thing he said, um, which might be maybe the only designation that he would make, but, you know, then, right? So he, he, he's very careful about what he will say about himself. All pathways of speech are uprooted. So we touched on this at the very end of the last class also, is that the Buddha has this intriguing problem of having to convey to us ideas, teachings, concepts, paths, you know, descriptions of things. And we all want to know, you know, and he's happy to do it, you know, true, beneficial, you know, he's happy to give us categories and tell us when to do what and so forth, if that's what we ask. Um, but what he's pointing us toward is something that's very, very hard to talk about. Um, so he had an interesting task before him in teaching us. It's interesting that he chose to give answers in this situation. Yeah, why, why do you guys think that is? Do you have an, an idea or anybody else? I don't think we know. It doesn't say, but we could speculate. Setting. The like setting, the setting, the setting, like setting. Who's yeah. There, who's asking him the question? Because could be. It probably would have been obvious to him. Um, the Prince of Ida was trying to challenge him, so he was kind of coming mm -hmm. in from this way. These are a different set of holy men in their own right that are coming at him, not as equals, but as fairly learned scholars in their yeah. So it seems like to me he's just answering based on who the audience is. It's more that skillful means anything. Yeah, I think that's quite quite possible. Um, Helen, he okay, they, they could benefit from it, whereas Malankiputa, he sort of needed a slap on the face. I think, I think that's also true. Is Malankiputa was at a little different level? Yeah. 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 Car Carlotta. You, you are referring to the last week. Last week, remember when right. Malankya Puta right. asked all those questions? Oh, yeah. yeah. Which were. Is the universe finite or infinite? So yeah. I don't exactly remember if I didn't have available, you know, the thing from last week. But one thing that I, I think I, I recall is that last week the conversation did not start, how can I. Get rid of or go over or, or, or go over this flood, right? That's how can, right. How can I liberate myself and all that? Which is a different point to start the conversation. Exactly. He, so, you know, Upasiva comes at him very respectfully. You know, he says, "Oh, you know, venerable sir," effectively, and and he asks within the frame of, I want to be liberated. Um, you know, how is that going to come about? And then he has further questions that end up being these questions about what happens when a liberated person dies. And so, but all in that spirit, the Buddha is very happy because he had the initial correct frame, right? Whereas Malankya Puddha's frame was, if you don't answer these 10 questions, I'm going to disrobe. <laughs> you know, it's like, it's a little different. <laughs> um, and also... You know, yeah. So I think there's, I think there's a lot to that. Yeah. 
Okay, we are at time, but is there any final comments to feel complete? Yeah. But I had, a, you have mentioned in your email to try to come up with a question. That's right. Okay. And, um, where in, where in this teaching is all right speech with that? Is there room for the noble lie of Platonic philosophy? Are you familiar with what I'm talking about? Like, uh, it's, it mostly deals with politics, but it's like basically telling people what you need to tell them in a given moment might not necessarily be true, but it might be for their benefit. But is there ever room for that? He doesn't allow for it in the sutta that we just read. Um, he never defines true, untrue, but beneficial. You'll notice that's the one that was left that's out. Yeah, it's an interesting one. Um, you know, the um, we'd have to look through other suttas to comb through and see if he ever um, does that or allows someone else to do it. There are other suttas where he says you should never lie, even for a trivial for, for yourself, for another person, or for some trifling worldly gain, that's what he says. Um, and that the, it's also said that in the whole, you know, you can see if you believe this, but the whole long history of lives that it took the Buddha to gather his paramis to the level where he could gain awakening, that the one precept he never broke was the precept of lying. So we can all say, well, <laughs> so much for me. Hmm? Doesn't he tell his son? And he tells tell his son not to tell lies. Yeah. Yeah, so he's pretty clear on the non-lying. Um, but, you know, we don't always know what the truth is. Um, and if we don't know, if we're saying something that isn't true, that we had no way of knowing wasn't true, again, the karma is not the karma of lying. There has to be, it has to be truly something that you know, but have decided to speak falsely. Yeah. There's an example that I heard about recently where people tell untruths to people with Alzheimer's mm -hmm. to prevent their suffering. Mm -hmm. um, so that, that's an interesting, you know, out of compassion. Yeah. Yeah, there may be, you know, in the modern world, we may be able to define such cases. It might not have been appropriate in the Prince Abaya teaching, but... Um, you know, surely out of compassion if us, for us as lay people, uh, there may be such situations. Or, you know, we could do it knowingly and decide that the karma that we will, you know, we will get some bad karma from that, but that we're going to take that as better than the bad karma of causing a person with Alzheimer's to suffer or to be scared and confused. And that that would also be not very good karma until we make a choice. There is a story, a Jataka, a Jataka tale, those are the stories of the Buddha's lives before he was born as Gotama, um, where he was on a ship and he knew that uh, it was a ship with a lot of really good people on it. Like everybody was at least bound for a heavenly world. I, I forget the details, but they were all good people, except for one who was plotting to sink the ship. And... <laughs> You know, it would have been the death of a lot of people who, who were doing a lot of good in the world. And so out of compassion, he kills the murderer, the potential murderer, before he can do that, deciding that the karma, even the karma of killing, 
is going to be better than killing all those, letting this other guy kill all those people on the ship, not just for his karma, but for all the good that they could do in the world if they lived. So that was the choice he made. Yeah. Okay, if you think of it, we can do it next week. All right, thanks everyone. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.